High schoolers are busy, but no one's too busy to help fight cancer. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is looking for their next student visionaries of the year. Could that be your child? High schoolers who participate in this seven-week philanthropic leadership development program gain valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community. Most importantly, this campaign is an opportunity for high schoolers to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on the lives of blood cancer patients and their families. Sound like something your child might be interested in? You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at lls.org students. That's lls.org slash students. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secrets and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. I'm your host, Karina Longworth, and this is part 11 of our ongoing series, Erotic 80s. I'm getting a little fed up at sexually emancipated ladies being referred to as broads. I'm not doing this because somebody's making me do it. You're a strange girl being a naughty boy. Last year, he was discovered making amateur videos of his own sex robbers. Magazine, October 17, 1988. The cover lines promised 1988's sexy, sexier, sexiest. Inside were the results of a reader's poll, which declared Cher and Patrick Swayze 
to be the sexiest stars alive. Amongst sexy, sexier, sexiest men, coming up just behind Swayze and Tom Cruise, and featured on the cover of the magazine, was Kevin Costner. Costner had been virtually unknown a year and a half earlier. Us recapped his recent resume, quote, Nobody had a single racy thought about Kevin Costner as the saintly G-man in The Untouchables. Then along came that heated backseat of the limo scene in No Way Out. Then, this summer, the smoldering Costner scored in the sack with Susan Sarandon in Bull Durham. Voila! A sex symbol was born. Costner stood out from the other men featured in this sex symbol issue. He didn't have the impossible body of Swayze or the boyish charm of Cruz. He wasn't cut from the Richard Gere pinup mold, which Don Johnson, Tom Selleck, Mark Harmon, Rob Lowe, and Mel Gibson all were to various degrees. Incidentally, Gere himself had fallen out of the himbo conversation by 1988. He'd come back as a silver fox two years later in Pretty Woman. Costner wasn't pretty, but he wasn't yet the rugged star of Westerns that he'd grow into being. He wasn't neurotic. There was no ambiguity about his sexuality. His masculinity was too basic to question. And that was the appeal. If men fantasized about doing something dirty with a virginal type like Doris Day, Costner inspired similar fantasies of corrupting the incorruptible. His most interesting performances, most of which fell between 1987 when The Hollywood Reporter was still misspelling his name, and 1991 when he won the Best Picture Oscar for Dances with Wolves, have him playing the cracks in the American armor. He's an aging baseball player who is not quite good enough on the field and off the field finds himself competing with a rookie. He's a Navy hero whose reputation and life is on the line because he couldn't resist his boss's volatile mistress. He's the bodyguard who fucks the pop star he's supposed to be protecting. Every porny fantasy you can think of involving a man in uniform, for a few years, Kevin Costner brought to life. For a long time, I didn't get what was attractive about Costner. And then, all of a sudden, I really got it. I definitely didn't get it when my middle school was gripped with the bodyguard fever. By then, I had already seen Truth or Dare, in which Costner visits Madonna backstage after her show, wearing a mock turtleneck with his hair in a mullet. And then this happens. You were great. Thank you. You were great. Thanks, Thanks. for having us. That was really oh, generous. Sure. We, Thanks for coming. We thought it was neat. Yeah. <laughs> neat? Yeah, really neat, yeah. No one's ever described it quite that way. Hi. Yeah. Hi. Okay. Thanks Have fun tonight. Thank you. I don't think we'll be making another deal. Oh, really? Not yeah. neat enough for you? Nah, well, not, not quite. <laughs> as soon as Costner turns his back to leave, Madonna makes a gagging motion. Madonna so ruled my worldview at this point in my life 
that no man could recover from such devastation. I came of sexual age in between the releases of Waterworld and The Postman. Our timing was off, to say the least. Then, in my 20s, I saw Bull Durham. Costner is certainly sexy in that movie. But if you're 25, he's also kind of cringy. I still didn't totally get it. And then I turned 40, and I saw No Way Out for the first time, and it suddenly clicked. Now, I can acknowledge that Costner, in the late 80s and early 90s, was a hot guy. But I'm not sure he ever again radiated the pure sexual energy of No Way Out. I think the reason Costner is so hot in No Way Out has a lot to do with the alchemic mismatch of Costner's good boy gone bad vibe with Sean Young's bad girl gone well, gone. Sean Young is a presence. In the best of her movies, as soon as she comes on screen, you think, who is that? But one reason you think that is because she never became a major star. It wasn't for lack of trying. Today, we will talk about why No Way Out boosted both Costner and Young's careers and track what happened to each of them after that. Costner would soon become the most bankable male movie star of the next five years. Not long after her indelible and unforgettable on-screen dalliance with Costner, Sean Young's A-list career was essentially over. Join us, won't you, for the second-to-last episode of Erotic 80s. Let Tend Dental make your dream smile a reality. We offer a variety of top-rated treatments, including Invisalign aligners. And for a limited time, Tend is offering $750 off orthodontic treatments. Offer valid through January 31st, so don't wait. Visit hellotend.com slash sale. That's hellotend.com slash sale. And book your free consult today. Hi, I'm Una Chaplin, and I'm the host of a new podcast called Hollywood Exiles. It tells the story of how my grandfather, Charlie Chaplin, and many others were caught up in a campaign to root out communism in Hollywood. It's a story of glamour and scandal and political intrigue and a battle for the soul of a nation. Hollywood Exiles from CBC Podcasts and the BBC World Service. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. No Way Out is about two people who are so instantly attracted to one another at first sight that minutes later, they have sex in the back of a moving limo before exchanging names. And this impulsive act destroys both of their lives. That is not a spoiler, but No Way Out does have a big controversial twist So now is your warning to go watch the film if you want to see it without knowing how it ends. No Way Out begins with Costner's Tom Farrell in worst-for-wear navy whites being interrogated in a small windowless room. He's asked to explain how he knows the Secretary of Defense 
And we flash back to six months earlier. It's the inaugural ball. Tom arrives at the party right behind a stunning brunette and watches her getting checked by a guard with a metal-detecting wand. She looks at Tom as she says, Becky, it's not a bullshit detector, else none of us would get in. The two keep catching eye contact from across the room as Tom, a naval commander, tries and fails to network with Defense Secretary Bryce, played by Gene Hackman, and she wanders lonely. Finally, he approaches her. Note in this clip how, in the background, the music changes from an ultra-cringe version of The Twist with new lyrics about DC into a supremely sexless cover of Do You Think I'm Sexy? It's what she's referring to with her line about nausea. Want to dance? The twist? No, thank you. Well, we don't have to twist. No, I meant no. So no wasn't a figure of speech? No. <laughs> You're pretty impressed with me. No. <laughs> yes, you are. Stoli, straight up. So I was impressed. Yeah, want a drink? Same. Make it two. All right, ladies, do you think you one of them? No, no, I one of who? These hypocrites, all fat and shiny, gearing up for another four years of ramming it to the rest of us. Are you one of them? No. <laughs> I'll bet you are. You're pretty cynical. Adequate to the occasion. He's acting shy, looking for uh, the answer. We have no, a potential nausea situation building here. Now hold on a minute before we go much further. Let's get out of here. My date's not going to like that much. But what the hell? <laughs> His wife will be delighted. Is this something we should talk about? Nope. So 10 minutes into this movie, these two are in the back of a moving limo having soft rock sex to a plot song by Michael McDonald and Paul Anka, while the delighted driver watches in the rearview mirror. As Susan, Sean Young is styled to recall a classical Hollywood vamp. The dress she wears in No Way Out's first set piece is unmistakably an 80s update of the dress Ava Gardner wore to stunning effect in the movie that was her breakout, 1946's The Killers. Young doesn't have Gardner's languor. Her lanky, slightly gawky elegance is more like Kay Francis, and she reads her lines like an ironic Joan Crawford. She has an infectious giggle. Her personality is too much in an exciting way. Think Deborah Winger at her most unhinged and then turn it up a notch. So Tom and Susan, who finally exchange names post-coitus, have this wild night together, and then he has to ship out the next morning. They barely stop making out in time for him to catch his flight. He calls her from a payphone inside a titty bar in the Philippines. He's drunk and sleazy and obviously on her wavelength, 
or at least the wavelength she was on the night they met. But she hears it's him and hangs up. She's not alone. She's with the guy who pays for her apartment. It's Gene Hackman. Tom performs a daring rescue at sea. The defense secretary and his lackey, Scott, who is openly in love with him, agree they should hire Tom at the Pentagon because they, quote-unquote, need a hero. So he comes back to D.C. to work for the guy whose mistress he's absolutely crazy in lust with. Every scene between Sean Young and Kevin Costner in this movie is super horny because while the stakes are obviously high, they seem to be having so much fun. They can't stop laughing in a movie which is otherwise deadly serious. Until Tom starts to feel jealous of the man who's keeping Susan. And even then, when she confides who it is, she's so nihilistic, so beyond the point of giving a shit, that she makes a joke out of it. It's David Bryce, Secretary of Defense, satisfied? You know I work for Bryce? Then that makes two of us. This part of the movie works so well because you get caught up in the romantic hope that this woman who has become resigned to a rote transactional love life with a boring old politician a relationship in which her special sexual magic is the draw, but her own needs are clearly besides the point, has now found a guy who could let her unleash the weirdo that she obviously is. Not unlike how this movie provides the perfect vehicle for Sean Young's own unwieldy electricity, which in turn unlocks a virility from Kevin Costner like really no one ever would again. And director Roger Donaldson doesn't shy away from objectifying him. 31 when this was filmed, Costner is young and pouty and really fit without being built. The camera loves watching him smoke in a suit with the shirt just slightly unbuttoned. But nothing this hot can last. 45 minutes into the movie, Gene Hackman finds out Sean Young has been seeing another guy, tries to slap his name out of her, and ends up accidentally killing her. He and his fixer decide that they have to blame the killing on the other guy in her life, if they can find him. And the way they'll find him is by pretending he's a mythic spy named Yuri. What if the search for this man was a vital national security, a secret operation that we could control. It won't hold up to scrutiny. We'll invent an excuse for the search that can be justified. The important thing is to abort an investigation of Susan's death before it ever gets to you. No. It's a house of cards. There is no Yuri. It doesn't matter. All the intelligence agencies believe that there's a mole in the Defense Department. You know the theory? that Yuri was sent here by the KGB while he was still in his teens. And for all intents and purposes, he can pass as an American. Well, Scott, they've been talking about that for four years. It's the CIA's wet dream. There's never been a shred of evidence. Yeah, but now, there is. He was the man who spent the weekend with Susan. He was the man who killed him. Yeah. 
Lorraine, would you ask CID to get all the material on Yuri and then bring it into the secretary as soon as possible? Thank you. I don't think we can bring this off. You can. So basically, they're trying to cover up Gene Hackman's sex scandal by concocting a search for a Russian spy who they believe doesn't exist. But when they find the guy who is sneaking around with Susan, they'll frame him as this fictional Russian spy, and the cover-up will look like a victory for national security. That all of this evil fake espionage is cooked up by Scott, who has already been drawn as a repressed gay guy who was threatened by Susan's role in his boss's life, is not a great look. Anyway, of course Tom is assigned to lead the search for Yuri. Tom understands immediately that Bryce killed Susan and that he's been tasked by his bedroom rival to hunt for himself. I like No Way Out best when Sean Young is on screen, but the last hour of this movie, which is essentially an increasingly tense cat and mouse game, most of which is confined to the Pentagon and was shot in a replica of its offices and hallways built on the Wizard of Oz stage on the MGM lot, is extremely well-directed. Until the final twist. It turns out that Tom was not just looking for himself because he was Susan's lover. He was looking for himself because he is Yuri, the Russian spy of the CIA's wet dreams. And his whole affair with Susan was an op. The original mission is unclear, but now he wants to walk away from the Soviets forever. In the end, they let him go, because as his handler puts it, they know he has nowhere to go. If the Russians don't get him, the Americans will. The press notes distributed by Studio Orion asked journalists not to reveal this final twist. Box Office Magazine disobeyed, spoiling the twist because they were mad that this, quote, thriller that's so old-fashioned it's almost quaint with a surprise ending that sabotages the whole movie, grossed $4.3 million in just 800 theaters over its first weekend. P.S. Adjusted for inflation, this would be $11 million for a per-screen average of over 13000 which would be pretty remarkable for a movie opening on 800 screens today. Most critics were more cooperative. Many had fun describing the limo scene and the general tawdriness of the film's first half. The episode is funny rather than crude because the two actors are happily conscious of misbehaving, a flex of awareness that brings us close to them and turns the encounter into a shared joke, wrote David Denby in New York Magazine. He added, Fast lane happy sex like this is a fantasy and has become even more of a fantasy in 1987. When filmmakers use it, they might as well make it a comedy of lawlessness that everyone can enjoy. Andrew Saris wrote a long essay in The Village Voice comparing and contrasting No Way Out to its putative source material, the 1946 novel and 1948 noir film The Big Clock noting with approval that the sex is 
bodier and kinkier in No Way Out than in the previous film in a way that matched the novel. Saris wrote about the pleasure of watching Costner in, quote, the most delightful sex coupling in recent memory. Saris defended the ending, quote, Could it be that we have a newfound need for completely untarnished heroes without any of the ambiguities and complexities of the real world? Or do some of us suspect that the filmmakers hedged their bets by suggesting that as untrustworthy as the Pentagon and the CIA may be, there is still a red menace out there? The probable doom of Costner's in-between man makes him a fitting hero for our time. There is indeed no way out for him or for us. I think Saris is probably right about why people tend to reject the ending, which seems to invalidate what was up to the last five minutes, a subversive-seeming movie for the Reagan age, in which institutional power is depicted as casually and self-interestedly corrupt and willing to use a sham of anti-Soviet homeland security panic to cover their own amorality. All of a sudden, at the end, the movie says, the problem is not us, there really are Russian bad guys out to get us. This is also the only way a mainstream Hollywood movie in 1987 could get away with being as lewd and as cynical as No Way Out is for most of its running time by, in the end, backing away from critique. But I also think there's something else happening. We do, as Saris notes, invest in Costner's fate because of the delightful sex, but that delightful sex also makes us invest in Sean Young. When she dies, you want Tom to avenge her death by punishing Hackman. Finding out Tom is really Yuri rips out the rug from under the romance, which makes her death all the sadder. Young described the character of Susan as full-fledged on the roller coaster. Young insisted she wasn't playing herself in No Way Out, but over the coming years, full-fledged on the roller coaster would become a fair definition of her public persona. A dancer turned model turned actress, Young had major parts in two sci-fi landmarks that were flops on their original release, but became culturally significant, and both were recently revived by Denis Villeneuve, Ridley Scott's Blade Runner, and David Lynch's Dune. In the latter, Young played the part of Shawnee, later assumed by Zendaya. When Philip K. Dick, the author of Blade Runner's source material, saw a photograph of Young, he reportedly called her the, quote, super destructive, cruel, beautiful, dark-haired woman that I eternally write about, and now I've seen a photograph of her and I know that she exists, and I will seek her out and presumably she will destroy me. Roger Donaldson said he cast Young in No Way Out because he found her to be, quote, terribly sexy and incredibly intelligent. She saw the complexities of this woman. She's got a very strong personality, but that side of her character has been held back in a lot of parts in the past. We wanted to give her the freedom to be more herself, to let go, to be less inhibited. She delivered everything we wanted. 
Young had aspired to play parts like those that had gone to Barbara Stanwyck or Rosalind Russell, a mode that makes more sense when you watch her in Cousins, Joel Schumacher's brutally underrated bittersweet sex farce from 1989. She would get few chances to show off that side of her talent. But for a brief period after No Way Out, Young was pegged as the femme fatale du jour. Comparing the impact of Young's early disappearance from that film to Janet Lee's death in Psycho, Newsday marveled at her Susan as a strong female lead, all libido and life force despite a touching lack of self-confidence. The shock of her performance was all the more startling because it seemed to reveal something that had been missing from her previous big breaks, like Blade Runner and Dune. It's hard to be sensual and abandoned in futuristic movies, wrote David Denby, but in no way out, giving up her panties with amazing alacrity in the limousine. Young is goggle-eyed with excitement, rather like a teenage girl. The naughtiness of sex with a stranger is part of the turn-on for her, Susan, and she's amused by her own breathlessness. Young has a brief time on screen, but she makes the most of it. Pauline Kale was one of few dissenters, and she unleashed her bitter, misogynistic resentment of beautiful women on Young in a way that seems designed to also undercut men who were taken in by the actress. Quote, most of us would probably agree with Cocteau that the privileges of beauty are enormous, but do they include Sean Young's bad acting in No Way Out? She smirks when she means to be suave and bares her teeth and jumps up and down when she means to be daring. She emits peals of phony laughter when she's being delightful. The audience seems perfectly content to have her put away early in the movie. She acts like a nutbird Ally McGraw. File this with Kale's assessment of Kathleen Turner's supposed lack of sexiness in Body Heat. She's welcome to speak for herself, but she claims to speak for the audience, when most evidence seems to be to the contrary. Costner had been kicking around Hollywood just as long as Sean Young, and when he made No Way Out, he was just as much in need of that one vehicle that would allow him to break through. People who may not have known Costner before this summer certainly know who he is now, wrote Martin Grove in his Hollywood Reporter column as No Way Out was being released. Obviously, neither Grove nor any of his editors at The Hollywood Reporter knew who Costner was before the summer of 1987 because Grove spells Costner with a K throughout this column. Who was Costner before 1987? Born in Linwood, California, near Compton, to a dad who climbed poles for the electric company and a mom who worked at the welfare office, Costner was a high school jock who went to Cal State Fullerton to study marketing and married his college sweetheart. Before they met, Costner told GQ in 1987, I just picked up girls. I was kind of used to sluts. I could talk to them. Costner came of age in a white working class community for whom the film colony was holly weird. But after graduation, he had a quarter life crisis. A white rat could have been doing what I was doing, he said later. 
I prayed for direction. What I didn't have was focus, a love of life. He began taking acting classes at night. Famously all but cut out of Lawrence Kasdan's The Big Chill, he plays the dead guy everyone is mourning, Costner failed to break through until appearing in Kasdan's Silverado in 1985. No Way Out was finished in the summer of 1986, but Orion decided to hold its release for a year, banking that Brian De Palma's The Untouchables, released in June 1987, would turn Costner into a star. It did. So when No Way Out finally came out in August 1987, audiences were hyped for Costner. They were also primed for the plot of the movie, thanks to the Iran-Contra scandal and the July 1987 congressional testimony of Oliver North, a decorated Vietnam vet turned National Security Council functionary who became the fall guy for the Reagan administration's illegal arms sales. Millions of people watched North's testimony live that summer. And when No Way Out came out, many critics saw similarities between North and Costner's double-dealing man in uniform, who The Hollywood Reporter called a celluloid Oliver North. It was the combination of No Way Out and The Untouchables that broke Costner out and offered flip sides of his personality coin, the sexy spy and the daddy with the gun, the naval hero cuckolding his boss, and the cop who is just as much of a killer as the gangster. Costner's early interviews are interesting because you can see someone who hadn't spent most of his life preparing for stardom grappling in real time with the image of him Hollywood and the audience have. So he's on the cover of GQ in May 1987, and inside the story, he insists that he can't be typed. Quote, I'm not a prick, not a nice guy. The next month, he's talking about being typecast as a hunk. People send you scripts based on what they think about you, he told interviewer Peter Biskind. I mean, I'm white and about six feet tall, and I guess dateable or something. In Interview Magazine that same month, he acknowledged, they're not going to let me do the Hunchback of Notre Dame or the Elephant Man. But in the same story, he cryptically insists there's more to him than anyone realizes. Quote, I feel I live two different lives and I have a private life that may be very dark. My family comes to set and I have a lot of fun with the children. But then there's another side that I can't fully explain. It's almost like being drunk when you can't explain what's happened. I have to get juice from something. And I get it from seeing things I haven't seen. The media didn't buy the idea that Kevin Costner had a dark side, even though his beautiful performance of one was part of why he was so alluring in No Way Out, even though that was, as Richard Corliss put it in time, a film about acting on the global scale, about convincing the world that you are what you are not. No one wanted to accept the idea of a dark half because they were so desperate for Costner to bring a stability to the screen that had arguably been in short supply since the advent of method acting. Vanity Fair described Costner as something the movies haven't seen for a while, a leading man. 
interview magazine piled on. With his tousled, dark blonde hair, his six-foot frame, and the inextinguishable glint in his eyes, this independent actor is a true star for the 80s. He has the virility of the old Hollywood stars, minus the phony glitz, a combination that defies easy explanation. When Time magazine put him on their cover in 1989, they declared Costner to be the man of the moment and a star out of his time. Costner is both a harbinger of the post-imperial American male and a throwback to heroes of Hollywood's grandest days. Various publications over the first few years of his fame would compare Costner to a wide range of leading men from Hollywood's golden era. Clark Gable, Steve McQueen, Robert Mitchum, Gary Cooper. The effect of all this press is a cumulative sigh of relief. It truly feels like a weight has been lifted because daddy's home. It would soon become apparent that Costner's natural role was as an evolved patriarch who can listen and learn, but still take care of everything. But to me, he's only interesting when playing vulnerability. Obviously, the best scene in Dances with Wolves is when the Sioux come along and try to steal his horse while he's fully naked. In that sense, his version of masculinity serves as the bridge between the Reagan 80s and the Clinton 90s. If he became the hunk du jour thanks to The Untouchables and No Way Out, it was Costner's next film that proved he was a once-in-a-generation star. For most of No Way Out's running time, Costner is playing a guy for whom sex seems to be both an Achilles heel and a way of displacing his power anxieties with men. The twist ending complicates the sex part, which is one of the reasons it can be hard to take. But Bull Durham would give Costner another showcase for this dynamic, placing him in another love triangle, this time as the veteran. Bull Durham is narrated by Susan Sarandon's Annie, a 40-ish English teacher who spends her summers assessing the prospects of her local minor league baseball team. Each year, she picks one player to have an affair with. The film opens with her narration, explaining the governing rules of these relationships. Making love is like hitting a baseball. You just gotta relax and concentrate. Besides, I'd never sleep with a player hitting under 250, unless he had a lot of RBIs or was a great glove man up the middle. You see, there's a certain amount of life wisdom I give these boys. I can expand their minds. Sometimes when I've got a ball player alone, I'll just read Emily Dickinson or Walt Whitman to him. And the guys are so sweet, they always stay and listen. Of course, a guy will listen to anything if he thinks it's foreplay. I make them feel confident, and they make me feel safe and pretty. Of course, what I give them lasts a lifetime. What they give me lasts 142 games. Sometimes it seems like a bad trade. But bad trades are part of baseball. Bull Durham was produced by Tom Mount, a Universal executive and co-owner of the real Durham Bulls, 
and written and directed by former minor league baseball player Ron Shelton. Despite these credentials, Bull Durham is less effective as a baseball movie and more effective as a film about gender and sex circa 1988. Shelton would later say he had wanted to make a movie about sexual withholding and sexual politics from a woman's perspective. Certainly, Bull Durham puts male bodies on display more than female bodies. You see Tim Robbins' butt before you see his face. He is rookie pitcher Ebby Calvin Lelouch, and Annie's partner in objectification Millie hooks up with him in the locker room before his debut game. Annie then asks Millie for her scouting report. Millie, you gotta stay out of the clubhouse. You're gonna get everybody in trouble. I got lured. You did not get lured. Women do not get lured. They are too strong and powerful for that. Now say it. I did not get lured. I accept full responsibility for my actions. I did not get lured. I accept full responsibility for my actions. That's better. Okay. Now, you got your radar ready? All right, honey, let's get down to it. How was Eddie Calvin LaBouche? Well, he fucks like he pitches, sort of all over the place. Bo Durham is a hard R rating with no violence beyond a couple of generally comic fistfights. And though we see a lot of male bodies in the locker room, its sex scenes are hardly explicit. The rating comes almost entirely from the dialogue, which is not only frank about sex, but sometimes florid. On the night of Lelouch's debut, the Bulls get another new player, Crash Davis the veteran catcher played by Costner. In his late 30s and at the end of his career, Davis has been traded to the Bulls to serve as an unofficial mentor to Lelouch, a dumb kid as well as an undisciplined baseball talent. Crash is on the verge of breaking a minor league home run record, which is not what you want as a pro ball player. No one wants to set a home run record in the minors, because the goal is to get to the majors, and you don't want to be at the top of the heap of guys who weren't good enough to make it to the show. Crash's wound has salt in it because he did make it to the show for a few days earlier in his career. In the show, everybody can hit a fastball. Well, how would you know? You've been in the majors? Yeah, I've been in the majors. Yeah? Well, You've been in the show, man? Yeah, I was in the show. I was in the show for 21 days once. Wow. <laughs> 21 greatest days of my life. You know you never handle your luggage in the show? Somebody else carries your bags? It's great. You hit white balls for batting practice. All parks are like cathedrals. The hotels all have room service. The women all have long legs and brains. <laughs> After a night at the bar, Annie decides her man of the summer is either going to be Crash or Lelouch. Costner is all wounded masculinity. Robbins is all young guy bravado. She invites them both back to her place. Costner gives Robbins a tiny, lascivious smile when his character thinks they're being invited to a threesome. 
given that we know Annie's friend already had sex with one of these guys that same day, Shelton is putting out a very libertine vibe here, which could also help to explain the rating. This movie might have merited an R from the MPAA just because it celebrates two women who have multiple sexual partners. Spoiler alert, there is no menage a trois. Crash backs out of Annie's Bake Off via this monologue, the most famous of the movie. Well, where are you going? After 12 years in the minor leagues, I don't try out. Besides, uh, I don't believe in quantum physics when it comes to matters of the heart. What do you believe in then? Well, I believe in the soul. The cock, the pussy, the small of a woman's back, the hanging curveball, high fiber, good scotch, that the novels of Susan Sontag are self-indulgent, overrated crap. I believe Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone. I believe there ought to be a constitutional amendment outlawing AstroTurf and the designated hitter. I believe in the sweet spot, softcore pornography, opening your presents Christmas morning rather than Christmas Eve, and I believe in long, slow, deep, soft, wet kisses that last three days. Putting aside everything else he says here, everything sort of great and sort of terrible. Why does this minor league baseball player have strong, informed opinions about the novels of Susan Sontag? Because he's a figment of Annie's imagination, just as much as she is a very specific type of male fantasy. No one talks in real life like either of them, in baseball or anywhere. Realism is not the point. The point is that they are each other's dream made flesh. She is the woman with long legs and brains from his tall tales about the show. He is a man who is actually going to challenge her and force her to share power with an equal while still making her feel safe and pretty. And it takes them the whole movie to face their fears of getting what they want. Bull Durham starts in Annie's point of view But after she chooses Lelouch by default, it switches to Crash. His is a worldview of seething resentment, masking sadness. His prospects start out bad, and over the course of the film, just kind of get worse. He becomes more washed up, more dissolute, more of a loser, and sexier. This is obviously intentional. When Crash finds out he's being cut from the team, Costner plays the scene wet from the shower, wearing nothing but a tiny towel. There may not be much baseball left in his body, but the body is something else. The only question is whether he can stop playing defense. I think a lot of people judge baseball movies based on whether or not they let them cry with their dads. I think many of us would not want to watch Bull Durham with our dads, given some of the content in clips I've already played for you. But its last scene still makes me cry. For me, it's ultimately a film of deep melancholy, about the difference between being at the beginning of your career and being at the end of it. And it's about getting a second chance after you've become convinced you're past your prime. Here, as in No Way Out, Kevin Costner's sexual persona is completed by the actress he's working off of. 
At 42, Susan Sarandon was a convincing maternal sexual muse. From Rocky Horror Picture Show to The Witches of Eastwick, which came out just a few months before Bull Durham, her career seemed infused with sex, but when a reporter asked her about this, she corrected the record. The first real love scene I had was with Catherine Deneuve in The Hunger, Sarandon said. Before that, quote, I had never been touched. For an actress to be entering a new realm of sexual roles in her 40s was, for 1988, a very big deal. Sarandon's character started a real conversation about new models of female sexual liberation. Or at least they were new for Hollywood films. In New York Magazine, David Denby stressed the novelty of Annie's annual muse arrangements. Quote, She selects. The boy is presumed to be grateful for the gifts she bestows on him, which include not only her sumptuous beauty and considerable appetite, but her amazing understanding of baseball. In an L.A. Times editorial, Jack Matthews wrote, Annie can maintain control over her sex life, have the same revolving door policy about airhead bedmates as men have had without the risks of either commitment or ostracism. Bull Durham, in its unapologetically sympathetic treatment of Annie, seems to mark a new maturation in Hollywood. In an editorial, producer Tom Mount wrote that his company, quote, received hundreds of letters, primarily from women across America, hailing the film because of its reinforcement of their decision to live an independent life outside the confines of societal conformity. Susan Sarandon's portrayal of Annie Savoy had touched them in the way that good movies do at their best. Bull Durham brought in plenty of money from every gender. Though never at the top of the box office, it stuck around in theaters for months and became the 15th highest-grossing film of 1988, which was significant given that baseball movies had a reputation for dying at the box office. And because of this, Costner was able to do something no star had ever done. He made two hit baseball movies in a row. Field of Dreams, which opened in 1989, was even bigger than Bull Durham. And it was nominated for a bunch of Oscars, including Best Picture. By 1992, he was one of the three most bankable stars in Hollywood, as well as the winner of two Oscars for producing and directing Dances with Wolves. Then, after as incredible of a five-year run as any actor had had in recent memory, the culture collectively started to recoil a little. Vanity Fair put Costner on its cover in January 1992, and the story inside included mocking observations of the newly crowned triple threat taking, quote, a large, thoughtful bite from a pink hostess snowball washed down with a gulp of milk. The author of this profile, Edward Klein, tried to indict Costner for abandoning his blue-collar Republican roots. Klein used the terms touchy-feely and politically correct as epithets, related a number of arguments against Costner from the likes of Pauline Kael and Maureen Dowd calling Costner bland and smug, and quoted a New Republic piece 
accusing Costner of being a white man who, quote, can no longer bear his whiteness. This was obviously a backlash to Dances with Wolves turning Costner overnight into a decorated auteur, which would have been hard to take from any actor. Dances with Wolves is both interminable and stupid. It's a travesty that it is one of just three Westerns to have won Best Picture. And amongst the five films nominated for Best Picture from 1990, Goodfellas should have beat it in a walk. But my problem with Dances with Wolves being celebrated is really that it seemed to steer Costner's career and persona as an actor away from that spark of darkness that had fueled Costner's more interesting and, yes, sexier, earlier work. There is a what-if scenario here worth pursuing. The last film that Costner starred in that was about sex was Tony Scott's Revenge, released in 1990, the same year as Dances with Wolves. This is a nasty piece of work in which Costner plays a fighter pilot who retires and goes to live at the beachfront compound of a friend a powerful Mexican mob boss played by Anthony Quinn. Costner's character is thrillingly morally complex. He seems to regard his dangerous friend as a mentor and father figure and still can't stop himself from ravaging the guy's young wife in a coat closet. Everything only spirals out of control from there. Costner had fought to get revenge made and had actually wanted to direct it himself he did end up rewriting the script. If this brutal movie in which a woman becomes a pawn in a cutthroat battle of masculinity had been Costner's directorial debut, no question would he have had a different career. As it was, revenge flopped with critics and audiences and was swiftly brushed into the dustbin of history. The libidinal danger that Costner had shown he was so capable of deploying got buried with it. He would still play romantic roles, but they'd be like the bodyguard, which wants us to think Whitney Houston finds him irresistible, in part because he's patronizing and square. Kevin Costner is the perfect subject for erotic 80s, because his career is the perfect example of how an eroticism that blossomed in that decade could be domesticated and defanged by the 90s. Speaking of defanged, after the break, we'll go back to Sean Young and talk about the wild turns her life and career took after No Way Out, so that around the same time that Kevin Costner was swilling milk in the pages of Vanity Fair, she was in Sedona, Arizona, defending her reputation. By the time No Way Out was released, Sean Young had already shot a small part as Michael Douglas's wife in Oliver Stone's Wall Street. This was another zeitgeist-defining hit, and to the outside observer, Sean looked like a star of the moment. But those outside observers didn't know what had happened on the set of Wall Street. Movie Line magazine would later report that co-star Charlie Sheen 
quote, one plaudits from the crew for surreptitiously sticking a post-it note on Sean's back with the writing, quote, I am the biggest cunt in the world. According to Oliver Stone, Young had arrived on set believing she had been miscast as Douglas's wife and that she instead should have the female lead, a part that had gone to Daryl Hannah. Sean felt more and more encouraged to lobby for the role, even though we were already shooting, Stone said. He fired her. She had problems on her next film, too, but for very different reasons. The Boost starred Young and James Woods as a couple who become addicted to cocaine. According to Young, while they were shooting, Woods, who was involved with another woman, began pursuing Sean. I was like, Jimmy, look, these are normal feelings. If we feel this way in six months, we'll revisit the concept. It was a crush being turned down, that's all. So sue me. And he did. Woods and his partner, Sarah Owen, filed suit against Young, alleging the actress had waged a Fatal Attraction-esque campaign of harassment against them, including leaving a disfigured doll on their doorstep. The rumor mill worked overtime, embellishing Woods' actual allegations into Baroque urban legend. Both Young and Woods denied gossip that Young had superglued Woods's penis to his leg. Young insisted that Woods had made it all up to make her look bad. When Woods met somebody who was as strong internally and in fact more powerful, his biggest desire was to destroy that purity and that power, she said. The reason he dropped the case was because he finally had to prove the case. There was no proof. And the reason there was no case is because I didn't do it. The lawsuit went away, but the gossip did not. Decades later, Young said that Woods' allegations had an instant and lasting impact on her career. For years, every time I would go to an audition, I'd hear, so what about this James Woods stuff? So I didn't audition well, she said, adding, when you have your reputation wrecked, then you go in to prove yourself it's really not the same game. Asked by Entertainment Weekly to comment in 2007, Woods sent the reporter a barrage of angry emails about the quote-unquote jihad of terror Young had supposedly inflicted on him 20 years earlier, which he claimed, quote, was certainly not about spurred advances, as they were most assuredly not spurned. Woods's lawyer then tried to convince E.W. that his client had sent those emails by accident. Amidst the drama with Woods, Young was cast as Vicki Vale in Tim Burton's Batman. But during rehearsals, she fell off a horse, broke her arm, and was replaced by Kim Basinger. Young believed they could have shot around her injury and speculated that Batman producer John Peters pushed her out because he, quote, had this hard-on for Kim Basinger. Van Young was cast in Dick Tracy as the Warren Beatty character's girlfriend, Tess Trueheart. When Young was fired a week into shooting, 
The official explanation was that the dailies revealed that she wasn't, quote unquote, maternal enough. Young said the real reason Beatty let her go was that she threatened his manhood. I made him look too old and didn't respond to his endless hitting on me, she said, alleging that at one point, Beatty grabbed her and tried to kiss her and she rejected him. Sean appeared on the cover of Movie Line magazine in June 1990. She showed up to the interview carrying pages of handwritten notes about her experiences. Reading from those notes, she described Beatty as, quote, impossibly self-centered, more vain than any woman I've ever met, and obsessed with sex, his penis, and conquering women. Remarkably, this appeared in the same issue as a story on Dick Tracy. In June 1990, Movie Line thought they would sell more magazines with Sean Young on their cover than Warren Beatty, star and director of what the magazine described as the most eagerly anticipated film of the summer. What Sean Young had that Warren Beatty didn't have was a crusade. It's time that the fallacy of difficult leading men be exposed, she told Movie Line. There are a lot of difficult leading men, but that's not talked about much because we're in an industry where men occupy most of the powerful positions. Magazines were happy to quote Young saying things like this, but Hollywood wasn't psyched to read them. A lot of times, she said, a lot of people don't want to hear the truth. This might explain why there was such a negative reaction to what became Sean Young's most infamous performance. After she had been forced to leave the production of Batman due to her broken arm, Young wanted to be considered for the sequel, specifically the role of Catwoman. Young was surprised when she realized she wasn't on the long list of actresses in the running for the role. So she showed up on the Warner Brothers lot, uninvited and unannounced, wearing Catwoman-esque eye makeup and thigh-high leather boots, and got someone to trail her with a camcorder. She spoke with executive Mark Canton, but Tim Burton wouldn't see her. Then she showed her camcorder footage during a remarkable appearance on the Joan Rivers show, on which she appeared wearing a full, homemade Catwoman costume. The segment begins with Sean addressing the camera and Tim Burton in character as Catwoman. Seems to me old Timmy takes himself pretty seriously now. So I'm going to do you a favor and help you check into reality for a minute. You see, you really do have a wonderful life. Very lucky to do what you're doing. But something must have happened to you since we last met. Because not to grant the Catwoman a meeting and not to see me when I dropped by your office indicates that you're not taking care of business and that you don't have a clue as to who the real Catwoman is. Consider this a formal notice that the Catwoman has tried to get through to you and you wouldn't listen. Young then sat down for a long interview, out of character, with Rivers, who let Sean explain her side of the gossip. Hollywood has become an, an unfortunate situation where art and commerce 
you know, are at odds. And art is sort of like an endangered species. And the, the big blockbuster becomes what makes it possible for people to gain more power, to do other roles, to demand right. more and better roles. So everybody knows that, I mean, the first Batman wasn't acclaimed as a fine movie. You know, let's put it nicely. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and so you know, but it made a lot of money, so there was obviously something in it that people wanted to see. So they they know the formula for this will attract a lot of people to go see it. So people who can get into a movie that makes you know has a large audience, have, they have more opportunity then to continue to be more important within that Hollywood structure. There are other structures besides Hollywood, you know, but. Um, but I mean, I've never. I heard that Michelle Pfeiffer said she'll do it for nothing. I mean, that no that's, way. That's a, That's yeah. no way, Michelle, honey. Let me. We gotta talk. You yeah. don't need to do this for nothing, okay? Why wouldn't Tim Burton see you? I you don't know. You worked with him. You had a good relationship with him. Well, that's why I feel so so uh, angry. Yeah. Is yeah. because I, I worked with him and. I fell off this horse. They asked me to get up on this horse a week before we did the movie. The day before I actually fell off this horse, I got in the, I got in the mail, Federal Express, that summons stuff from Woods. Yeah. So I was very sort of like, you know, kind of, I was really not in a good way. Right. I mean, it was really shocking to me. And I fell off and, and... These were the original Batman now. Yeah, the original one. And I fractured my arm, and I really had a tough time with it. And I, I really expected to be given the chance right. to, like, be seen, taken seriously, you know? Because he usually, it was going to usually for the first movie. He right. should have been wanting to at least see you for the second movie. Well, just even, even if he wasn't going to see me, I mean, not, even if he wasn't going to use me in the uh, sequel, I, I can't understand why he wouldn't at least see did, me. Didn't you, know you try I mean? to see him? Did you? Yeah, act, did. You did clips of those, right? Yeah. yeah. And he ran. He wouldn't see me. At one point, Joan playfully goaded Sean into talking about the casting couch, and the actress's deadpan responses suggest the two women were on the same comic wavelength. For a beginning actress. Would she, seriously, because you know the inside, who, if she had to sleep with five men to become a star? She has talent, but now she's got to sleep with her. Would it be Michael Eisner? Who would be the five she would go after? He's the head of Disney. I mean, who would you say to a girl? Who would you say, no, who would you say to a girl, these are the five, grab them and jump them? Who, I mean... Well, you mean in terms of power? Power people. and becoming a major star, I yeah. suppose, um... Michael at CAA, Ovitz. Mike Ovitz, the head of CAA, that's yeah. the biggest agent. Yeah. yeah, I would say that he'd be pretty, if he, if he would even get into that. Yeah, what would you, you know? say she could get in? Yeah. Who else? That's um, one. I would say maybe Steven Spielberg could Steven be real Spielberg helper. Steven Spielberg could be very helpful, helpful to her. All right. To her. Who else? Three more. Um, Jewison, that guy. Norman Jewison. Yeah, yeah. Very helpful. Probably sleep more with directors than with leading directors. men. So you know Tim what I mean? Burton. Or producer. <laughs> yeah, but... <laughs> Joan Rivers would not have hesitated to make fun of an actress to her face if she thought it was warranted. But Joan took Sean seriously. So seriously, in fact, that at the end of the segment, she brought out a psychologist to testify that Sean Young was not crazy and that her anger was justified. And she's putting herself on the line like that. Is it healthy? Very. She has to. And not only in her business, but everybody in all aspects. <laughs> Cat women don't cry. I wanted somebody to say that for so long. <laughs> it 
healthy. <laughs> you see how important it is to be acknowledged? Yes. Really? <laughs> It is. Why is because, it healthy? Now, well, because. <laughs> and if I do it, will I look like what her? Come on, you go even further. Does she not? She even. You sat you on Kitty Litter. Yeah, yeah. But why is, is it healthy just to, totally? Why? Because she's not afraid, just like you're not afraid at all, at all about saying what you want and going for it. Now, sometimes you're going to get in trouble for it. You're going to get criticized. You're going to get dumped on. People are going to say it's silly. They or that you're foolish or like how could you do that? Most of them say that I'm crazy. Or, that's, right. that's Why do they thing. say she's crazy? Every time she comes out and she says things like the male egos are stupid or I want this, they come back and say this is a crazy lady. Right. Well, uh, there you've gotten involved with some men who have pretty heavy-duty egos themselves and you've butt heads with them. Mm. Right? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Now, she calls and she feels like this is a karmic thing, being a cat woman. What do cats do? They scratch at, right. at people's eyes when they get ruffled. So, I mean, you're, well, you, that, you're a sweetheart the now, express, but isn't there a yeah. part of you that comes but, out that's no, I mean, really... There's a part of me that's permanently, I feel, changed and permanently angry now because of some of the abuse that I've received now, in society and in my women, own right. industry. How right. do women deal with the, I have such anger sometimes. River's obviously related to Young's struggle as an outspoken woman in Hollywood, so she didn't mock or condescend to her. Everyone else did. Cousins director Joel Schumacher, who Young considered to be a father figure, criticized her Catwoman campaign publicly, saying, Sean is not her own best friend. There are plenty of channels in Hollywood to get you in to play a part, especially if you are a well-known actress. Entertainment Weekly called Young, oh so desperate. 16 years later, the same publication summed up Hollywood's reaction to Young's Catwoman crusade. Quote, she became and remains a crazy bitch punchline to the powers that be. As Young put it, that aggressiveness on my part was just not allowed for a woman to do. Young would continue to make more of an impression in the media than in the movies. Though she hadn't had a starring role in a hit since No Way Out in 1987, magazines would continue to go out of their way to cover her. Literally out of their way after Sean moved to Sedona, Arizona. She had gone there initially in search of a psychic, who she thought might be able to tell her who actually left the doll for James Woods. Then she ended up settling in an adobe-style house, which she called the Shonderosa, and which she filled with adopted dogs and cats. Away from Hollywood, her mutually antagonistic relationship with the industry seemed to sour further. In 1991, she reportedly changed representation three times in nine months. By 1992, a year after Basic Instinct, a profile of Sean in the L.A. Times suggested her place in the Hollywood firmament had been usurped by Sharon Stone. One of Young's last leading roles in a studio movie would come the next year, when she sent up her reputation as a femme fatale in Carl Reiner's erotic thriller spoof, Fatal Instinct. Later, Young would say, I retreated, and that was a mistake. I should have stood my ground and fought. 
If you're not there to stand up for yourself, the rumor turns into a monster. I may have perceived it as self-preservation, but it had the effect of career derailment. Taking herself out of the geographic center of the industry probably didn't help, but one significant derailment involved Harvey Weinstein. The erotic thriller Love Crimes, shot in 1990 and released by Miramax in 1992, was supposed to be cathartic for Sean. Lizzie Borden, who had already made her landmark Working Girls, had signed on to direct Love Crimes because she was drawn to the original script by Alan Moyle, whose cult classic teen film Pump Up the Volume was in theaters when Love Crimes went into production. It was about a female district attorney who, frustrated by being unable to help women who come to her after sexual experiences that fall in the gray area between consent and abuse, decides to use herself as bait to catch a serial predator. The character is angry, and as the psychologist on the Joan Rivers show recommended Sean do, she turns her anger into action. As Borden said before they started shooting, quote, Sean's been through a lot in the last few years, and I think this is a way for her to get out a lot of her residual anger. She's so fearless. What we want to do is take it further than what's even on the page. The version of Love Crimes that Harvey Weinstein's company released was different from what was on the page, but not by Borden's design. The director was bombarded throughout production with notes and demands for script changes from both Miramax and another company which had provided financing. As a result, the story was constantly changing throughout production, as were the character motivations. The feminist inquiry Borden had hoped to mount was lost. Three endings were shot, and not all by Borden. At some point, she was replaced for reshoots and for the shooting of new flashback sequences by Kit Carson. Borden tried to take her name off of the movie, but Harvey Weinstein threatened to destroy her career. As it was, Love Crimes was so poorly received, it didn't exactly boost Borden's career. Borden has been open about the struggles on this set, but when the movie came out, most publications put more focus on stories involving the shooting of a sex scene between Young and Patrick Bergen, who filmed his role as the serial sex offender in Love Crimes before audiences saw what would become his more memorable performance as the abusive husband in Sleeping with the Enemy. The most oft-repeated story held that because Young found she couldn't feign attraction to Bergen, she offered a cute dolly grip $5,000 to double for the actor in the scene. Borden described the offer as a joke. Young said, I didn't feel like being naked. I didn't feel like making out. I just didn't feel like it. In hindsight, I was uncomfortable because I was exposing myself for a movie I didn't have any confidence in. It's a much worse experience to be in a movie that's no good if my body is plastered all over it. The released version of Love Crimes has just enough interesting stuff in it that it feels like a shame that it barely functions as a movie. Borden would later say that she didn't have a good experience with her star. She had wanted to cast Natasha Richardson, 
And Harvey had overpowered her, insisting that it had to be Sean Young or nothing. Borden said she never understood why Young, who didn't seem to have even read the script before showing up on location, had been so crucial to Weinstein's commitment to the film and didn't have much empathy for her until 2017, when Sean came out and said that in a meeting shortly after Love Crimes was shot, Weinstein exposed himself to her. And this is the only time this has ever happened to me. He pulled his thing out, and I, my response was, you know... Harvey, I really wouldn't be pulling that thing out because it's really not pretty. And I got up and I left. This is from a 2018 Frontline piece on Weinstein. But this is the kind of thing Young had been saying about men in Hollywood for 30 years at that point. There's no question her outspokenness and the perception she was quote-unquote crazy hurt her career. After Fatal Instinct in 1993, she was second billed in Ace Ventura Pet Detective the following year. But for the next almost 25 years, when she was in the news, it was mostly for other reasons. She was caught sneaking into the 2006 Vanity Fair Oscar party. A year later, she got kicked out of the DGA Awards for heckling Julian Schnabel while he was on stage. Young also allegedly mocked Marion Cotillard in French before being escorted out of the venue. In 2011, she went on David Letterman's show to announce she was ready to work. Gawker called it uncomfortable and sad. In 2012, she was arrested after allegedly slapping a security guard outside the governor's ball on Oscar night. She did Skating with the Stars and Celebrity Rehab. In recent years, Sean Young has taken to social media. In 2009, she joined YouTube, where she posts everything from footage of her tap dancing and taking a spin class, to an interview she conducted with Carl Reiner, to old home videos, including footage from the set of Dune and one piece mashing together highlights of her Joan Rivers appearance with her own footage from her visit to the WB lot. I'm not on Facebook, but I have read that Young's presence there is anti-vax and pro-Trump. This would not exactly be a surprising turn of events for a woman who has long self-identified as a truth-teller. It does feel like, in some ways, this is Sean Young's moment. Her self-directed documentation of her siege on Warner Brothers, today, would go viral. 30 years ago, she was exploited for being quotable, and her career suffered the consequences. Maybe if the culture had been more willing to actually listen to Sean Young's complaints back then, things wouldn't have gone so awry for her that she would have to lash out later. I think about a quote she gave after the incident at the DGA. She admitted that she had been drunk and said that she wasn't specifically heckling Schnabel, but had lashed out out of feeling, quote, shelved and discredited by people who didn't like that I was deeply honest and an unavailable prude who, at times, had a big mouth. It's not like she was the first person who was tempted to heckle Julian Schnabel. 
in all seriousness. For as much conversation as we've had over the last few years about listening to women, we're still a long way from fixing a culture in which the default response to a woman calling foul on a powerful man's behavior is to find ways to discredit and alienate her. I can assure you there will be more alienation next week in the final installment of Erotic 80s. Join us then, won't you? Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. The show is written, produced, and narrated by Karina Longworth. That's me. This season is edited and mixed by Evan Viola. Our research and production assistant is Lindsay D. Schoenholtz. Our social media assistant is Brendan Whalen. And our logo was designed by Teddy Blakes. If you like the show, please tell anyone you can any way that you can. You can follow us on Twitter at RememberThisPod, and we're on Facebook and Instagram, too. And if you go to our website, you must remember this podcast.com, you can find show notes for this and every other episode, which include lists of our sources and much more. At the website, you can also find merch like hats, t-shirts, and our special limited edition Dead Blondes coloring book. At patreon.com slash Karina Longworth, you can support the podcast, get lots of bonus You Must Remember This content, including scripts or transcripts of our full archive, and some glimpses into other aspects of my life. Proceeds from Patreon go to help pay all the people who work on the show named above. Finally, subscribing or rating and reviewing the show on Apple Podcasts can really help other people find it. So if you want to spread the word, that's a great way to do it. We'll be back next week with an all-new tale from the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then, won't you? Good night. You know that science solves crimes. Forensic science is exciting, challenging, and most of all, rewarding work. But there is a shortage of qualified individuals in this field. Hi, I'm Terry with Loyola University of Maryland's Forensic Science Department. Loyola is one of the only colleges in the country offering advanced degrees in forensic pattern analysis and biological forensics. Our courses, taught by forensic experts, feature hands-on training and small class sizes. They are based on real crime scene and forensic examiner training programs to ensure you are ready to make a difference. Our programs are open to students from a variety of academic backgrounds because we believe everyone can contribute to solving crimes. So what are you waiting for? Discover the excitement of forensic science at Loyola University, Maryland. Visit loyola.edu forward slash forensic for more information. That's loyola.edu forward slash forensic because you are ready to make a difference. Join one of Loyola University, Maryland's forensic science programs today.